Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Yes, I was tapped on my shoulder and asked if we're going to be in Romans 8. <laughs> Guess what? It's the last Sunday. Yes, we are in Romans 8. We are finishing out the chapter this morning. And this is what you would call a finishing pinnacle point. And it's short, but very, very sweet for us this morning. And I figured I've been really comfortable in my bed at home. And you might be asking, well, that's great, Pastor Chris. You're, you're sleeping well at home. That's wonderful. Well, I thought I'd like to try the couch this evening. So I'm going to highlight someone in my life that doesn't like to be highlighted, doesn't like to be made the point of attention. But I'm going to do that a little bit this morning. And I will pay for it later. Don't worry. So in case you're wondering. I will pay for it. But I am going to take this occasion this morning to brag on my wife a little bit. And she does not, like the stereotypical pastor's wife, play the piano or sing in the choir. But what she does do better than anyone else I know is to minister to children through her gift of planning and providing great programming in this church. Amen? And those of you who have kids know she does that here at Winton First Baptist by leading our children's co-op ministry. And it is a thriving ministry. Every year we have doubled in numbers. And we're seeing the fruits of that in our congregation here. So we really, really appreciate what she does. But as much time as she spends doing all of that, she spends countless more hours doing that in her time at home with being the teacher to our two boys. And so she has a double responsibility. And on top of that, she works another job. And so she's busy. We know that. I know that. She tells me all the time. <laughs> she doesn't think I'm busy enough sometimes, so... But she is. She's busy. And by almost any measure, she does that more effectively than most. And that isn't because she's the smartest teacher, but she is very, very intelligent. It isn't because she's the most fun teacher, although she does have a good sense of humor when she brings it out. But I'm convinced that the reason she is so successful and many of us are successful in what we do, is because the people that we interact with, the people that we teach, the people that we encounter know that we are for them. We're not about ourselves. We're for them. We're for the people that surround us. And that's a good thing. And she expects a lot from our boys, and she can be hard on them sometimes when they don't live up to their potential. But she lets them know all the time that she wants the very best for them. Because, again, she is for them. Now, I think all of us excel much better when we know that others are for us as well. And the best marriages are those in which both people are for their spouses and they let them know so. There has to be communication, right? The best parenting takes place 
in homes where the children know that their parents are for them. And the most successful people in the workplace are those who have bosses who are for them. The most successful sports teams are those where the players know that the coaches and fans are for them. And as we'll see this morning, the most successful Christians are those who know that God is for them. So the message this morning is primarily for those who are disciples of Christ. And if you are not a disciple of Christ, this message is for you too, to encourage you to understand the importance of that relationship you have to Jesus Christ. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, then the goal of this message is to help us develop an unshakable foundation under your faith. In other words, a foundation that will motivate you to live a radical life in which you are willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel and to bring the kingdom of God near to others. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the goal this morning is to help you come to the place where you can understand why you need to make that commitment in your life. And so as I begin this morning, I want to ask you two questions that will help you evaluate which of those two groups you belong to. And I won't ask anyone to raise your hand, because I will only embarrass my wife this morning. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But these questions are for you to consider quietly and to answer with God in your conversation with him. The one who already knows the answers, because... He knows your heart, like we talked about last week. He knows where you stand. And these two questions come with a familiar verse we studied a couple weeks ago and last week as well, Romans eight twenty eight. And hopefully you remember that when we looked at the verse, we said that the promise there doesn't apply to everyone. It only applies to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So the first question this morning is, do you love God? Do you love God? And obviously, none of us are capable of doing that perfectly, are we not? We're unable to do it perfectly. But, so maybe I should ask the question like this. Is God your treasure? Is God your treasure? Do you value him more than anything else in your life? Do you value him more than anything else in your life? And the second question might be a little bit harder to answer. But have you been called by God according to his purposes? Are you called by God according to his purposes? And I'm not asking if you've heard the gospel. I'm not even asking if you've prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your life. That's not what I'm asking. You see, in order to understand better what I'm asking here, we need to go to another one of Paul's letters here. And his first letter to the church in Corinth. And in that first chapter of that letter, Paul writes these words. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We could easily spend the rest of our time this morning on this verse, but let me let me get right to the point this morning. This is a type of sermon that we call the short and sweet, so some of you are probably cheering, yay, we get to go see that football game sooner than we thought. <laughs> You've come to the wrong church. No, it's not in length this morning. But we know that we could spend all day here because there's so much to unravel. There's so much to understand what God is portraying through us in Paul's letter here. But we're going to move a little bit quicker than that. And so every one of us in this room was in the camp of not knowing Christ at one point. And like I said, but those who are called, the cross is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's twofold. To the unregenerate human mind, the cross will always be foolishness. They see the cross and they see foolishness. Why did he have to die? If he was God, why did he have to die? And we know that answer. He died for us. He died for humankind. He died because he knew he had to. And because not only that, he wanted to. He loved us so much that he wanted to do these things. He wanted to suffer. He asked for the cup to be taken away. Don't get me wrong, because he was also in human flesh. And that's the first thing I would have asked. Please, if this can be done in any other way, let's do that. But God said, no, this is the way it had to be. And the way that had to be was for us to understand that to live like Christ is to suffer. We know this. We've been through Romans 5 through 7. And it's all about our suffering. And it's all about his suffering and his opportunity to show us how much he did love us. But see, that is not something that we can figure out on our own, no matter how smart we really are. Only the call of God in our lives can bring us to that understanding. So this morning, if you believe that the cross is the power and it is the wisdom of God, that is evidence that you have been called according to his purpose. That is the answer. And conversely, if the cross seems like foolishness to you, then you have not been called. You have not been called. But if you have honestly answered yes to both of those questions, then the rest of this message will be a great encouragement to you. But if you can't answer both of those questions with a confident yes, that it is in my prayer this morning that the Holy Spirit will use this message to bring you to that understanding, bring you to that point so that you can also experience that encouragement firsthand. So what's the truth of this? Well, the nine verses that we're studying this morning are clearly Paul's conclusion to everything he's written up to this point in chapter 8, as indicated by his return to the idea of no condemnation, which with he began in this chapter. But we'll just work through the passage 
verse by verse. He begins with the question here in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? So, the question comes to mind, what are these things that he's referring to? What are these things? Now, not all commentators agree on that answer. And those of you who have multiple versions of the Bible and you go through your checklist there, there's many different explanations of what Paul is trying to convey here. But it seems to me that these things is probably a little broader. Likely uh, either all of chapter 8 or even the whole section that began back in chapter 5. But regardless of exactly how far uh, Paul is going back, the message here should be very clear to us. You'll notice that I put the words for God in quotes. And that is because there are many ways that we could define that phrase. But I'm using it here in a very specific way to refer to those who can answer the two questions I posed earlier with a confident yes. A confident yes. In other words, if God is my most important treasure, and I can say that Jesus crucified is the power and wisdom then I can say that I am for God. I am for God. But what is interesting about this idea is that we can actually look at this concept from two different perspectives. The first way is to look at it like this. If I am for God, it is only because God is for me. God is for me. That is the idea that I talked about last week. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And if I am saved, it is only because God foreknew me. It is because God predestined me. It is only because God justified me and he will one day glorify me. We all have that to look forward to. So on the other side of the coin, if I am for God, then I can know for sure that I live my day-to-day life as God intended for me. He is working all things together for my good, even those things which are painful and difficult. We've all been through those. We talked about this last week as well. Why does God place difficulties before me? Because he's got a great challenge for you. He's given you an opportunity to test your faith, to see where you stand, to know where your heart lies. And like I discussed last week, it's hard for us to wrap our human minds around the fact that both these things are true at the same time because of the circular thinking that is required here. But this is exactly what Paul has been teaching us throughout Romans 8. If I am for God, then God is for me. And Paul uses a series of four rhetorical questions to drive home this idea. And we're going to explore those a little bit this morning. The first thing is, he's already given me and you his very best. He has already given us his best. Earlier this year, A young woman, a 36-year-old woman named Kristen Day met a stranger in a bar in Nimrod, Minnesota. Funny name again, right? Nimrod, 
Minnesota. And after seeing a port in his arm that was used for dialysis and learning that he was on a waiting list for a kidney transplant, she secretly underwent months of testing and found that she was a match. And almost six months after they first met, that woman donated one of her kidneys to that unnamed man. So it's hard to imagine that after giving him one of her organs that she would hesitate to help him out with something less demanding, like buying him a meal or giving him a ride to somewhere. But that's essentially the first argument here that Paul makes beginning in the last part of verse 31. That's the argument he's making where he asks the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a valid question. We're willing to do some of these hard and difficult things, but when it comes to the very small and minute details in our life, we fail miserably. I will tell you as a husband, I fail in this area miserably. I'm good about doing the really big things and having a calm attitude about things. But then I let a little thing like, well, we won't get into that, but I let a little thing like something bother me, throw me off my kilter, get me in trouble with my tongue, whether it be with the wife or the kids or anyone else around me. I change my attitude and forget for a brief moment what I'm doing and where I'm at. But again, that's essentially the first argument Paul is making here in the latter part, latter part of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul is not saying here that we won't face opposition in our lives. We know that. And he had certainly faced more than his fair share as we read through his letter. But what he was saying that is, no one or nothing that comes against us will prevail over God's purposes for us. Like Dave said, just imagine if we focus all of our energy into loving others, then we do tearing them down. What kind of world would we have now? What kind of world would we be living in? We'd be preaching different sermons, I'll tell you that. But in retrospect, we know that this is part of God's plan. We know that we face difficulties, whether it be here, in our lives, in others' lives. This is part of God's plan. But he also gives us the hope, the encouragement, and the understanding that he's working through these things with us. We're not doing this alone. He's right there alongside with us. And it's also important to keep verse 32 in context here as well because some have misapplied this verse to teach that if we just claim it by faith, God will give us a bigger house or he'll give us that new car or a supermodel wife or a successful career. I'm lucky I have all those things. Prove me wrong. But you see, the all things, in quotations here, 
is connected to the idea that the good that God has purposed in us is for us to make us more like Jesus. That is the purpose behind all of it. It is to make us more like Jesus. But he is promising that he will provide everything we need to endure opposition for the sake of the gospel that we will ultimately share in Christ's glory. That is our point. That is why we wake up early on Sunday mornings to get here. That is why God places those opportunities before us that we might feel a little uncomfortable doing. God does this for a purpose. I can know that God is for me because he has already given me his very best. He has given us his best. How can we not reciprocate? How can we not reciprocate that? The second question deals with how he qualified us. God has qualified us to be in his presence. He has qualified us to be in his presence. There's a story of a man and a wife and they, they took a trip. And like every other passenger, they had to go through a security screening before they were permitted to board their flight. And only those who had been through that security screening were qualified to enter that plane. As a passenger, you can certainly be glad that they don't just let anyone on that plane because without that security screening, it probably would not be safe to fly. Even though, and I know there's a lot of us here that had the same thinking, it's an infringement on our beliefs. It's an infringement on our freedom. But do you really stop and think that if we didn't have that screening, what would be allowed to go with you? Or along with you? Well, you see, God also has a screening process to determine who has the right to enter into the presence of a holy God. And that is a good thing because I don't know of anyone who loves God who wants to spend eternity in a place that would just let anyone in. Now, don't get me wrong. Just because you don't qualify right now doesn't mean that you won't. That's the beauty of God. That is the beauty of his grace. That is the beauty of the love that he has for each and every one of us. And even those who do not know him, that is his desire for them. You see, the problem is that our own, every single one of us, would fail that screening because of that sin that we have in our life. Even just one sin would disqualify us from being able to have a relationship with a God who is 100% holy. But thanks be to God, he took care of that, didn't he? He took care of that. At the same airport, we... They observed certain people like flight crews and other airport employees who were permitted to enter the secured areas without going through that security screening. And that's because they had a badge which indicated that they had been pre-screened and were therefore qualified to enter those areas. You see, that is essentially 
what God did for us through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been pre-processed. We are good to go. So that's why God plans these things in our life. This is why he creates opportunities for us to show that faith. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is not me. It is not you. It is God. If I attempt to enter God's presence on my own, I will fail the screening every time because of my sin. And Satan and perhaps other people would be happy to point out that those sins to God and bring a charge against me. That's okay. I say bring it on. Because I know who took care of that for me. And you know who took care of that for you. We don't have to worry about that. But you see, when those accusations are leveled, God answers those charges something like this. I'm going to use you, Pat. When we look at Pat, all we see is the righteousness of Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for Pat's sin, Pat is welcome to enter into God's presence and have a relationship with God. It's just like last week. That is all God's doing. Has nothing to do with what Pat did. Those who have ministered to Pat. This is all God's doing. But also know this. We know that God is for us because he has qualified us to be in his presence through the righteousness of his son, Jesus, which has been credited to all of us. All of us. Number three, he's pleading our case. God is pleading our case. If we were to ever be wrongfully accused of a crime, and I know that if we went to trial and we would want to have a good lawyer, amen? You'd want to have a good lawyer to plead your case. And what would be even better is if that lawyer was the son of the judge who was going to decide your fate. Kind of like an inn, you know? But as we see in verse 34, that is essentially the advantage we have when it comes to the case that others might try to make against us when we stand before God. Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. And his, who is indeed interceding for us. He's interceding for us. And here, Paul returns to the idea that the beginning of this chapter with verse 1 when he wrote... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I didn't hear you repeat it. We repeated like 50 million times. Right? What was the verse again? Good enough. Excellent. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to stand trial. 
There may be a trial set up for you because others want to condemn you. But you don't have to stand in that trial. God has already interceded for, interceded for us. And he now reinforces that idea with the rhetorical question he asks here, a question which expects us to answer no one. No one. The reason that there is no one who can condemn us is that we have God the Son himself who has risen from the grave to prove that his payment for our sins is adequate. It's enough. And who sits right now at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. So every time that Satan or anyone that comes into your life tries to accuse you, take heart in knowing Jesus is right there at the Father's side pleading your case. He's pleading your case, reminding anyone who would bring a charge against you that he has already paid that price for the deed. He paid the price for our sins once and for all on that cross. He's already done it. And I can know that God is for me because his son is right there pleading for me. And the last one, number four. He won't let anything separate us from his love. He won't let anything separate us from his love. And up to this point, Paul has been making the case that God is for us and that that really means that no one can take away the salvation that God has provided for us. God certainly won't take it away. Your neighbor can't take it away. So why do we fear? Why do we not go headfirst into everything? It's because we're human. We do humanly things. We talk about other people. We condemn other people. But God says you don't have to worry about that. I've already taken care of that. He's pleading his case. He's not going to let anything separate us from his love. So, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Should tribulation, should distress, should persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, weapons? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, like I read earlier this morning during the call to worship. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, I might be saying, well, I don't want to be slaughtered. God's given me a life and a, and a life to enjoy. Yes. But we have to be willing to lay it all on the line. Because that's exactly what he did for us. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's your encouragement. Take heed in that. Paul spends most 
of his time on that last idea, that on the first three combined, we know that the last five verses of this chapter comprise a single idea because this passage begins and ends with the idea of nothing being able to separate us from the love of Jesus. And Paul begins in verse 35 with a list of all the things that he and other Christians were facing in that Roman Empire that was openly hostile to Christians. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all those things I just mentioned. Those were a very real and present danger. When you walk into this church, were you worried about getting a sword in the side? Well, if you're around some of these kids, they have those things. But, but were you thinking that when you walked into this building? No. Were you worried about there were going to be enough food today? Were you worried about finances? Were you worried about what your neighbor is saying about you? Were you worried about how you were going to get home today because gas is so expensive? Were you worried about how you've been treating your wife? Were you worried about how you were treating your husband? Were you worried about the status of your relationship to Jesus Christ? But none of those things, as painful and difficult as they are, in any way indicate that somehow God is against us and not for us. If we get terminal cancer, that is not because God is against you. If you have problems in your marriage or your kids turn away from God, that is not because God is against you. If you lose your job or you struggle with those finances, that are those things don't exist because God no longer loves you. Understand that. God may not spare you in those situations. And the reason he doesn't, because he loves you. Understand that. He doesn't spare you from those things because he loves you. We have to be willing to sacrifice it all for him. To make us more like Jesus. And to bring more people into his family. In fact, because God is for us, we not only can survive these trials... We are more than conquerors because of his love for us. The phrase more than conquerors is just one word in Greek. It is a compound word that means to prevail completely or to have complete triumph. Complete triumph. We've already won. God's done the dirty work. Now it's our turn to fight the battles that need to be fought. And they don't start when you wake up in the morning. They don't start when you show up to work. They don't start when you show up to church. They don't start when you show up to a family gathering. This started long ago. This all started with the death and the resurrection of our Lord's 
Jesus Christ. He's already done that for us. And then, just to make sure we don't miss this point, Paul gives us another list that is intended to show that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, I can know that God is for me, and he is for you, because he won't allow anything or anyone to separate us from his love. And it is a great thing to know. But how should that impact your life? How, how is knowing that impacting your life? And there's obviously a lot of possible applications here, but let me close by suggesting just two. First of all, make sure that you are for God. Make sure that you are for God. I think that one mistake we often make is that we just assume that since I know most of you and most of you know me and we're here on a regular basis, that therefore... We're a disciple of Jesus, and therefore you are for God. That's a common misconception. And I could go into statistics about people who actually know God sitting in these pews today. It might make your head spin. It's a troubling fact. But I know from personal experience that it is possible to think you are for God. Just because you've been in church all your life or because you've read the Bible multiple times or because you've prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your heart. Now, while all those things are wonderful and good, I hope you've seen this morning that being for God requires a whole lot more. It requires a whole lot more from us. It means that we can answer with a confident yes the two questions that I started with this morning. Do you love God? Do you love God? And have you been called by Him according to His purposes? And if you can answer yes to both of those questions, then you ought to be on your knees thanking God every day because that is not something that you could have decided to do on your own. Only God Himself could bring you to that place. But if you can't answer yes to both of those questions, then I'd like to pray with you. I'd like to pray for you. While I believe that God can speak through me in the process of bringing you to that place where you are for God, I know that it's just not possible for me to convince you with words to make that decision. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And He is welcome here. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. Not anything that I could say, not anything that Pastor Dave could say, or deacons, or anybody else in leadership here at this church could say to you to make that decision. The decision comes between you and God. When the Holy Spirit comes, hold on. It's a wonderful experience. And I pray that for each and every one of us in this room. Only God can do that. And so I want to pray and ask him to do that. Now, we almost don't do this very often, but I feel led today that when we bow for prayer this morning, in just a few moments, that we would, I'm going to ask you to kind of raise your hand. And we want to come to you. 
We don't have to make a big spectacle of it. We're not going to ask you to come forward if you don't want to. But I want to give you an opportunity. If that is something that you desire, if you desire a personal relationship to Christ and what that actually means, then I pray when we bow our heads this morning, you just lift your hand for a couple seconds and I'll look for you. And I'll come find you afterwards. And let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about what that means for you. Let's talk about what that means for your family. And given the opportunity as we're here today, witnessing a baptism, that public profession of our love for Jesus Christ doesn't end when we're dunked in the water. That is just the beginning. That is the beginning where we get to come alongside you and help guide you through that process of being for God and realizing that God is for you. Sound good? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to stand at the sacred desk and to be a vessel for you, Lord. I thank you for each and every individual in this room. And Lord, if they don't know you, I pray that this morning is that time. And if that time is this morning and the Holy Spirit is calling upon your heart to do so, I'm going to ask that you just raise your hand for a second. And Lord, those of us who know and love the relationship we have with you, we know that it could be better. We know that we could be doing things to further your kingdom even more so. And Lord, I pray as those opportunities are given to us, that we will cast cares aside and then we'll cast the idea that we care what others think and allow us to run to those opportunities. Lord, we are so blessed to be in a place where we could come freely and worship you. Lord, I pray that we can invite others to come and be a part of that as well. Lord, we're already seeing that happening. And we're giving you the praise. It's not anything we're doing, Lord. We're providing opportunities, but it is through you and your Holy Spirit that things are happening. And so we give the praise where it belongs, and that's right in your lap, Lord. Thank you so much for what you do. Pastor Dave is going to come and close this morning. And every eye still bowed. Lord, put it upon our hearts to seek out those opportunities that you have for us. Whether it be at a fall festival or any event that we host, Lord, I hope that we come to these things with a genuine purpose of furthering your kingdom. Lord, you're already showing us that. And we're so grateful. But as we leave these doors today, after we've sung the last song and we've welcomed our new Christian in faith. 
Lord, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to those who desperately seek your face. And so I pray that when we walk out today, we're looking for those opportunities. And we're dragging people with us to come experience that, to allow God to work through us. And when it's all said and done, when it's all done here, Lord, and you've come and you've taken us home, we can stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We look forward to that day, Lord. Thank you so much. And it's in your name and all God's people said, amen. Dave. Phil, Russell, would you put wash me away? Please wash me away. Do you know for certain that if you were to die today, that you would live eternally with the Lord? Now, we're all going to spend eternity with the Lord or apart from Him. But the Bible says that these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to guess. You can know that. God's promises don't fail. So just ponder this morning as we uh, sing a verse or so of this. Wash away all the sin Away the thousand lies that fill my mind. Cleanse me again each day, my life, Lord, redefine. Wash me in your river one more time. Heavenly Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we will look for those opportunities. But Lord, more importantly, we know that you can work them through us because it is not through our own doing that anything is accomplished. Lord, you do it all. And we thank you for it. Thank you for Lexi. Thank you for her decision this morning to publicly profess that you are Lord. You are the King of Kings and that you are for us and we are for you. Thank you so much, Lord, for our time here today. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.